Als het goed is wel, toch? Ah. Hello, Carl. So, we made it. You made it. Nice. Once again. And we are extremely honored to have you on our podcast, and I sincerely mean it. You're a professor at Classical Studies at the Department of Boston University. Uh, you received your bachelor's, uh, yeah, your bachelor's at Yale, your master's at University of Michigan, and you did a PhD uh, at Harvard. And yes, maybe, and this is maybe the most stupidest question ever, but actually, what are classics, and, and why is it so important to learn about the classics, and how did you come to study classics? Why? It's, it, 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 it is a, a, a somewhat bizarre area of study. It, part of the traditional Western uh, education, uh, and and yet it has has that uh, role because uh, Europe developed from what was once the Roman Empire. And and so it's it's a perpetuation of the Greco-Roman tradition, which was felt to be essential if you were going to understand the modern world. Uh, actually, it was a very limited understanding of the modern world because it uh, just traced a certain segment of European uh, civilization, and it's largely unaware of the fact that the uh, the world was civilized in the, in the Orient, and there were new continents that had not um, even, uh, even been discovered yet. And so it was it was the traditional training of an educated European. It and as such, it's an anachronism. There's no reason why one would uh, base one's education as a civilized person on this particular segment of. Uh, of uh, transmission of culture. On the other hand, in that tradition, there were a, a great number of very exceptional uh, artists and, and poets and, and philosophers. And what they produced in, in some ways are ex exemplars of the, the highest potential of, of our human creativity both uh, in terms of, uh, of, of artifacts and in an attempt to understand the nature of our existence. And, and yet it is very biased uh, and, and, as I said, limited by the fact that uh, it obviously developed before there was any awareness in the European Asian uh, landmass of continents that were to be discovered much later. Yet, um, because of these exceptional works of, of creativity, um, investigating them gives you an, an idea of what the nature of our intellect is as we attempt to understand what it, what it means to be human and, and to, to exist here on, on this planet. They are exemplars of what we might consider archetypal human paradigms of, of experience and, and thought. And in that way, I, I think that it is still relevant. It, too often, it's not taught with that as the emphasis, and it becomes sort of uh, irrelevant to the problems we face now in in the present world and, and, and what we can, can 
uh, sort of suspect is the future world that's evolving. Mm. I want to come back to this later because I think it's a very relevant topic and also what the, the, the content and the overall message of your books are. Um, but I'm also very curious, like, why did you decide to study and follow the route of classics? And how did it evolve you to write seminal books like the Road to Ulysses and so many others that you have written, actually? So I'm very curious what the beginning of your path was. Yeah, from the from the beginning, coming from from the family background that I, that I had, becoming a doctor was uh, sort of a, a goal that would be respected in my, my family's tradition. And so I went to to uh, college, um, doing preparatory work for for a medical career, doing pre pre med. Um, but I realized that I would, the, the branch of medicine that I was interested in was psychiatry or psychology. And um, so I was, I was taking the science courses necessary so that I could, I could go, go to a medical school. In my freshman year at Yale, I had a philosophy class with a uh, unfortunately charismatic teacher who sort of ruined my life. Um, he said, you, you're not interested in uh, psychiatry. Psychiatry is the study of sick souls. And it was true. I, uh, I was fascinated by the, the, the fantasies of, of psychotics, thinking that they had something to do with uh, our, our, our human existence. He said, uh, uh, psychiatry studies sick souls. And what you want to study is healthy souls. If you want to study healthy souls, you study the works of creativity, poetry, music, and art. And I realized that was true. And so I switched to what I thought was at that time defined as the most basic of the humanities and, and became a classicist. But I was always not interested in classical culture itself so much as the paradigms of myth and uh, and so on that psychiatrists had been using in order to try to to explain uh, areas of human fantasy or uh, experience hmm. and so I, I was i was i was really looking for myself to understand who i am or and coming to understand to, to know who you are is a very complicated problem uh, and and you never do understand really who you are, but uh, as part of that, of course, even less can you can you succeed in it. I'm trying to understand who you are. How how was it? Uh... No, I, it, something that pops to mind just now is is maybe a bit of a tangent to the to the to the side. But the question, understanding who you are, would, would you say that that is is like a Western modern question? is that is that something that i mean it's really hard to answer perhaps um i'm just i'm just wondering if if if, if you've come across any uh indigenous cultures that also uh, struggle with these kind of questions like hmm i wonder who i am hmm. or is this something that is part of humanity the, uh, humanity the, i mean I, I guess it is but but to then also study that question and to then also dedicate one's life to go so deep and eventually 
end up teaching about it because the question who am i and what is it that i supposed to do on this on this earth in this lifetime is sort of rooted i guess in all the work that we're today discussing right so yes exactly yeah yeah I'm I'm also curious like maybe like and it's all gonna be a very big question, but like back in the days during the so called like 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 golden era, um did we have a better understanding on who we are on on what we were doing on this planet and, and a better mm-hmm. understanding of, of our purpose maybe and how we could manifest this. Because again also later on we will talk slightly more about your book. But it's it's that time and region which you study, which equally is the source of philosophy, Western philosophy, Western art. So so, so many things come from that specific time, and not another time. It's that that time. So what yes. were they doing then that we are not doing now, uh, which which made we that which made us still talk about them thousands years later. Yes. Was that a question? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. That, it was. It. Yeah. It's a very broad and open question. Like, and it's almost like unanswerable. But I'm curious. Like, did we? Did they know something back in the days which we don't? Did which we have forgotten now? Um, there, there's so many different periods of of, uh, of our history, and it, and it is uh, always variable depending on where. Uh, on, the, on this globe, you, you focus your attention. And so I think that some of the essential questions that were raised in Greek philosophy are not necessarily the only questions that we might ask. Uh, they have, however, programmed us in, in a certain way. Uh, but I'm well aware of the fact that there are other valid questions that they didn't think of that I can't can't imagine, but uh, however you frame the question, you are sort of determining something about the nature of what the answer is going to be. The possibilities are infinite, and there's no way that we can encompass that that infinity. I think that in the course of all, all of this teaching and and writing, I've come to know something about what it means to be me or to be a human. And I think I know that it means nothing in terms of of the cosmos, but it means a great deal to me personally that I don't have to accept the chaos, the ordered chaos of the cosmos, that I can stand up like Prometheus and say, I don't care, I'm here, I did this, and uh, in some sense, I can conceive of a better potential for the fact that I was here than would have any meaning in a infinite cosmos. Wow. Which I, which I think is what an artist does when, when an artist produces a work of art. How do you mean that? Can you elaborate on that? The, the artist has, has get, uh, given a certain order to material substances. And we like to think, well, yeah, and, that, and that's an, an eternal statement. Of course, it's not eternal. Uh, no matter uh, how well it's going to be, be preserved, and art is rarely 
preserved. Well, anyway, it's all going to disintegrate. And so it doesn't really matter whether it is really eternal. It is a configuration uh, that the artist has presented as the artist's version of of an ordered something. Mm. Is it also sometimes the, 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 the role of the artist to, to find the, the, that balance between the, the, the order that we know and the chaos, which is this life force, and, and they extract some order from this chaos and they manifest it into this piece of art, whatever that might be? Because also the question popped up, to what extent are you an artist versus a professor? And maybe they're the same. I haven't devoted myself to acquiring adequate proficiency in, in any artistic uh, skill to claim that I'm an artist, but but I, I do do things like that. Uh, I've done all kinds of creativity things. I'm a carpenter, I'm a musician. I've dabbled with, uh, with uh, sculptures and things of that kind, but uh, not in any way expecting that I would become recognized as as an expert what I was doing in the same way that perhaps I am recognized as an expert in my area of scholarship. Hmm. I try to be a well-rounded person. I've done all kinds of things. Isn't it also still that like your your scholarship and, and, and being a professor and teach and, and the way that you can extrapolate information and dedicate your time and effort into write it up in a certain way also still is a certain art and um and like and how can we actually marry uh the arts and and the, the academic world slightly more or maybe the academic yeah. world and the modern academic world became too academic and they miss the arts the the chaos slightly more yeah uh, but but, uh, but I mean, I, I, I hesitate as I talk about these things because I don't want to give the impression that I can tell you mm. how you should interpret your, your existence or what consciousness is. Plato Plato was, was an extraordinary person. We have every word that he wrote, although we have a whole area that we know that he, that he, that he did that we don't have. And the, the, the basic... Uh, idea that Plato presents is once you have finally come to the end of the argument, you have to tell yourself, but that's not the answer. Yeah. Uh, we're going in the right direction, perhaps, but that's not it. And when, when you are removed from the cave and you realize that what you thought was reality was just shadows projected on the wall of the cave, and you see this world outside, and you say, ah, and I thought that was reality. This is reality. And then Plato says, yeah, now this is the cave. <laughs> yeah, I think Plato's, the, the, the allegory of the cave of Plato is a, a, a yeah. continuous fractal, a piece in a piece in a piece. And I think it's uh, it's never it's never an end point, but always a process. And and I, I think uh, that you didn't come upon the, the allegory of the cave merely at, um, as, as a literary metaphor, I think that he had experiences incubation in, in caves uh, to transcend through the wall of the cave to another reality, mystical experience. And there's a long tradition of uh, 
uh, humans gathering in caves in, in order to have mystical experience. And the experience is to pass through the walls of the cave to another world. And when you get to the other world, you have to realize that's not it. I think this is a beautiful bridge as well to um, the, the, the mystical sense inside of, of life. Because at a certain moment, this, this mysterious mushroom came on your path. Mm -hmm. And I think it also alters or, or, or guided your trajectory within your, all your future work. So I'm very curious how the how it suddenly the mushroom was there and 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 how it influenced your life since the its introduction basically. Yes, <laughs> um, it, it it gave me the startling realization that there are other ways of of structuring reality, and it doesn't necessarily mean that these restructurings are more real. Than what I thought was real, but um, it makes me realize that the possibilities of what we conceive of as reality are infinite, and that I am the creator of the world I live in. And the part of that is is my programming, but I can alter that programming by additional programming, programming, education, studying uh, artistic uh, techniques, and things of that kind. And that ultimately, I am the creator of the world I live in. And pretty much, we agree to live in the same world, but we are never sure that another person is sharing exactly the same world that that that, that you have created. I, I'm aware of the fact that you, when you see things, you put that visual stimulus into uh, into order and interpret it and you interpret it in accordance with what your programming has been if you alter that programming you'll interpret it differently i have had this thrust upon me by by having a problem with eye sight in one eye and it means that one eye even though i have one eye that has 20-20 vision and the other eye doesn't and I can see things well when I know what I'm expected to see. If I go to, into a novel situation, I'm not quite sure what I'm seeing because I haven't seen it before. And if you apply that a little bit further, I'm aware of the fact that I'm programmed to see objects and not to see the, the things, the space between the objects. And I could e easily program myself to configure the spaces between objects as what I'm looking at. And that would be an entirely different world. But a corollary of this is that one may think that consciousness is the function of your brain. That is to say, it's, it's matter that is producing consciousness, but it's just as likely that it's consciousness that produces matter, which means that consciousness, intellect, is not the function of my brain, but my brain is the function of consciousness. That's 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 something I almost need to like. I need to take a break for like <laughs> sixty seconds and just <laughs> comprehend that for 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 those duration of those sixty seconds to then gather my thoughts again to come with a with a new question. Um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> but but i uh i hear you hmm. well something in me I mean, it, 
please. The allergies, I mean, this is uh, simplified mythologized by speaking of the soul and things of that kind. I think that's a simplification. But uh, if matter is a function of consciousness, that would mean that uh, the aspiration of immortality is a reality, uh, except that it's not the kind of consolation from mortality that most people want doesn't mean that you as a entity will exist as a spirit or, or a soul yeah it reminds me also of, of um, a, a book i once read by erich neumann the origin and history of yeah. consciousness yes which was quite a profound book <laughs> yes, i remember reading it many years ago <laughs> uh, yeah i also read yeah, that's, it that's been along my way my, my, my programming yes mm-hmm well, for me, it was a like a, an eye opener, and actually, also since the beginning, uh, when you were talking and explaining on how you went actually into uh, study the uh, the medical side, and then you actually switched to psychology. For some reason, it reminded me of Jung, Carl Jung, because he actually had the similar path, <laughs> because he started to become a a doctor, basically medicine, because he was interested in the deep unconscious and how people got into these psychotic states and but actually he, he then realized that it's psychology and and the, the psyche that's what needs to be studied yeah how, how much was maybe this is also a tangent but i'm, I'm curious are you, how much are you aware of Carl Jung's work was it of any interest for you is it just something a past chapter many many years ago or is it still relevant for you no, it, it, it's still evolving. It's still evolving? Yes. Oh, wow. Well, that show, shows how deep it is. <laughs> then I'm also curious, uh, because like I read all these groundbreaking books that really spinned my mind in, in, in various directions for many, many days and times. But one of these books uh, actually is your book. The Road to Ulysses, which you yes. co-authored with Gordon Wasson and Albert Hoffman. Yes. Like, I think I it, it's only a couple of weeks ago that, that it fully landed. <laughs> the, 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 oh, really? Well, the beauty of it, but also the implications of it. And it's it's quite of a thing. But I, I can, I'm curious, how, how do you maybe explain to your students, which are completely new to this subject, how maybe how this book came about and what it has done for you maybe personally but also for the academic world the insights that we got from it and also the reality of what was happening there and how it informed our the, the origin of western civilization maybe so that's a very big statement but um, that's four questions in one yeah sorry yeah i'm very uh, <laughs> Maybe you can cut it up in the... Mm, no, I hear you. And I think Carl he- hears you as well. And I I, I'm, I have no doubt he'll be able to, to summarize the length of the question. But something... <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. I think <laughs> something that also sticks with me, just a minute ago, you were talking about perceiving reality. Uh, I like the analogy of your, of your eyes. Because when this book came out, you and the co-authors, you saw something which when then that was published in the context of science it was not perceived at all the way you saw it so there's an interesting bridge there as well in terms of seeing because i feel that reading the book i've read read the book last year 
and i i feel that right now it's being picked up again and people do yes. see it so there's mm. a sort of sh shift in the fact that now people can come to you and be be like oh yes we see what you see <laughs> which might be quite of a, a delay in in perception so that's a, i find that yeah. a very interesting tension and i'm curious how, how you first of all how you deal with that because mm. for me it would be very frustrating <laughs> to to go through that decade-long delay yeah uh <laughs> where should i start uh, uh talking about about that yeah i i've recently looked at some parts of the road to Eleusis again and I realized it was really very beautifully written and I can't believe that, that uh, I pulled it off and rather quickly but uh, when Gordon Wasson proposed to work on it he was an older person venerable in my eyes and uh, I was just programmed always to produce what my teacher wanted me needed to do and so I, I can't quite remember how I did it but it did it very quickly and answered his question uh, I think uh, quite quite well it, it, it was revolutionary at the time because the Greeks were thought to be the fountainhead of rational discourse uh, the platonic tradition but people have misrepresented Plato as being rational. Certainly his followers uh, are recognized as being mystics. And it goes back to the founder himself. Plato was a mystic. He was also, before he became a philosopher, he was a poet for the theater of Dionysus, uh, producing tragedies. And most people know this, but they think that it is inconsequential to his finally becoming a philosopher. But there's a reason why his philosophical works are dialogues, they're plays, but they're plays that are, are not in the theater because the theatrical experience, and he would have known because he was a poet for Dionysus, the theatrical experience is too emotive. You get convinced and carried along with the uh, the music, the dance, and the rest of it. You're not thinking, you're being programmed. And uh, one of the best known of his uh, dialogues is the Symposium, uh, which is a drinking party where the, the people have decided not to get drunk. They got so drunk the night before. But as it turns out, uh, Alcibiades uh, crashes the party and they drink more heavily and they all pass out the end only a person wakes up and only uh, three people haven't passed out they were continuing the discourse and the three are socrates and agathon who was who was a tragic poet and it was to celebrate his victory in the theater that the party took place and aristophanes a comedian wrote comedies for, for the theater the subject of the discourse which we didn't hear because we were too stupid and got drunk and fell asleep is the same poet the poet who produces tragedies and comedies and we would love to know the answer of it but we didn't hear it because we fell asleep but actually and this is typical of Plato style, we have heard it because the person who can, who is both comedian and a tragedian is Plato. And the dialogue is itself an example of this combination of 
tragedy and comedy. Hmm. In your classes, like, do you actually talk about your work and, um, well, specifically the road to Ulysses? I don't make it the centerpiece of it, no. Is that also deliberate or maybe because you have focused on the topic such a long and extensive time that it maybe loses its interest? Well, it's one building block, uh, a a lifetime of building an argument. Hmm. It's it's very important, I think, but it's only part at the time, a couple of years that it took to write, write that book. I hadn't figured out many of the things that I later came to understand. I don't think that say anything there that I disagree with, but I can express them better now and with more relevance, I think. What would you, like, maybe if it's possible, you could briefly elaborate what the argument is that you propose with with Hoffman and, and Wasson in this book. And then I'm also quite curious how you now reflect back on it and maybe how you would, even though you said it's beautifully written, maybe you would have liked to change it or add something to it or edit it in a certain way. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I certainly have added to, to the argument o- over the years. But the in antiquity, there were, uh, there was a, a, a kind of, religious experience, which was called a mystery. And it was called a mystery because something was conveyed that you were forbidden to divulge to someone who had not been initiated into, into whatever the experience was. And there were various of these mysteries. They're called a mystery because uh, the word for mystery derives from the idea of holding your lips together and not saying anything. The idiom today is mums the word. If you, if you, if you put your lips together, mm. don't say anything. You don't have any sound at all. But if you're going to make any sound, it's going to mm, move. Oh, yeah. And so mystery mums, mums the word. So there were many different ones. And people who were uh, initiated into the experience formed a kind of special brotherhood. Uh, these persisted in later tradition as secret societies and things, things of that kind. But the most uh, well-known and most, most most persistent of these mysteries was one that was uh, enacted at a sanctuary short distance outside of Athens at a village called Eleusis. Eleusis is a, a place name. It means the place of arrival. There's a mythical tradition of, of why it's the place of arrival. But beyond that, it's an archetypal idea. You're going someplace, and this is this is the destination where you, where you arrive. The ultimate journey is the journey of life. And when you reach the end of that journey, um, the arrival is death. And the... Uh, uh, the secret of the mystery, I couldn't tell anyone, but part of the fact that you couldn't tell anyone was that if you told someone, uh, they wouldn't understand it anyway because they haven't experienced it, is that when you get to the end, it doesn't matter because you're at the beginning. We know that uh, there was a myth that programmed the experience. It had agricultural metaphors, but it wasn't about agriculture. Uh, it, it's just the metaphor, unless the seed is planted, it cannot sprout. Mm. <laughs> and that's sort of, sort of ag- ag- agriculture. And we know that they saw something, 
and before they saw something, they had a special potion, and we had the ingredients for the potion. And so it was uh, Gordon Wasson's suspicion that uh, if you drank something and saw something, the uh, what you drank was perhaps a psychoactive potion or, or an entheogen. So we know the ingredients of the, of the potion, and we know that something was seen. The classicists, since it's quite clear, the indication that you saw the mystery, concluded that there was some kind of dramatic performance that you saw that changed the whole nature of your conception of life, except that we have the archaeological site that's been excavated, and it's not a theater. In fact, the nature of the building, which was called the Hall of Completion, Telesterian, is that there are tiers of steps on which the initiates sat for the revelation but there's a central building in the center of this great hall and it's on the side door of that central building that what was seen was supposed to have been seen and the central building in the great hall of initiation we obscured this site from most angles of we know where we know the initiates were sitting on the steps so it it, it, it's not a theater the greeks knew what a theater looked like it's probably significant that the area where the spectators in the theater watched the performance is called the cave. And it's probably significant that at the top of the theater of Dionysus in in, in Athens, there's a sacred cave. I mean, I said that Plato didn't make up the, the allegory of the cave, that he experienced it. And, and the, the theater itself is an example of that. What is produced uh, on the stage is an emanation from the cave, which is at the top of the spectators' uh, ranks, ranks of seats. And yet, you must realize that what you see in the theater is not real. It, it may, it, it, it's a kind of reality, but it's only, it's only uh, in the direction of, of, of another reality you haven't seen. But that, that's an aside. They knew what a theater looked like and the hall of initiation was not a theater and so there could not be a theatrical performance there but we know that they drank something and they saw something and that that was the mystery and so wasson assumed that the drink was psychoactive and what they saw was not a physical enactment but it was a mystical vision induced by, by the drink and he uh, asked Albert Hoffman if it was possible that the Greeks had access to uh, a, a psychoactive agent uh, as, as powerful as LSD. And Hoffman, uh, who had manufactured LSD, uh, studying the properties of the toxins, uh, complex of toxins in a fungus that grows on grain, ergot. Uh, the LSD mystery we, we know used the metaphor of agriculture, the growing of grain, uh, the seeds, and so forth. If we could have a psychoactive agent like LSD that was related to grain that was as powerful or similar to LSD, we would have something to work with. And Hoffman said that it is possible to extract a psychoactive agent like LSD from ergot on grain in a simple uh, water solutions. So Hoffman 
provided the drug and Wasson provided the the idea and left it to me to, to satisfy these two older men, uh, which I obviously immediately reacted to as authority figures to come up come, come up with uh, the solution. And it was always that worth my, my teachers. I gave them what they wanted. Wow. What a story, huh? Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. It's also quite nice to to hear it um, broken down so eloquently um, in such a pretty short period of time. Um, I'm I'm curious what what happened after you published the book. Like I haven't like I kind of know very top line what happened also in, in terms of academic. Like I don't I don't think it was received by that many people so warmly and openly which maybe if you would present it today this book it would be different um so i'm curious it, what, it what wasn't it, it wasn't so much ever refuted by uh, classical uh, colleagues it was just ignored but uh, outside of professional classes classicists it was very popular it was translated into several languages and it's, it's still in print but it remained outside the mainstream of classical scholarship, so that um, I just recently had uh, an opportunity to look at a definitive handbook on Greek religion published in uh, in 2007, where uh, various scholars have written essays on different parts of classical religion. My work has centered on the, the god Dionysus and Greek intoxication and on the Eleusinian mysteries. So I looked at the two chapters on that aspect of Greek religion. I'm not mentioned anywhere. The the essay on the Eleusinian mystery is completely in the dark, has no idea of, of altered consciousness. And the essay on Dionysus is totally unaware of the the nature of Greek wine uh, and the work that I did on Dionysus and Minetic ceremonies. Simply put, uh, Greek wine was drunk, diluted with water, supposedly because the Greeks were so rational that they didn't want to get drunk, and so they always diluted their, their wine. If you dilute wine with three or four parts of water, you don't have anything that we would consider wine. It would be tasteless, in fact. But they supposedly did that so that uh, they wouldn't get drunk rather than being sensible and just drinking less uh, and enjoying the taste of the wine. Uh, but it didn't taste like, like our, our wine. They added other things to it, which were assumed to be flavoring agents. If you look at the, the nature of, of what was added, you realize oh, they were adding drugs to the wine, that it was a, a variable mixture of, 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 of intoxicants. And then if you look at the evidence about how much they had to drink in order to get drunk, you find out, oh, they didn't have to drink very much of this doctored wine, which has minimal ethanol content, to get very, very drunk, which is uh, essential to understand the nature of Dionysus and the relationship between wine and the Bacchant or Mynetic experience. It's true that you that the drink was intoxicating, but the etiquette was that you were not supposed to get intoxicated. So, for, for example, the wine glass, wine cup, our wine glass is, is, is a continuation of the, the same same structure. It, it was a shallow saucer, 
on a narrow stem. And uh, that's a stupid way to, to drink something, uh, especially if it's intoxicating, because you're apt to get drunk and knock it over and break it. And the same thing is true of our wine glasses. <laughs> but uh, that's the point of it. You are dabbling with the, with the experience of altered consciousness, but you have to manage. And you think that as you get a little bit tipsy, you're becoming more eloquent and you're beginning to to uh, discover connections and thought that you didn't have before that. But let's be serious about it. You're just getting drunk. Getting drunk means that you're losing the firm grasp on how you interpret reality and just on the verge of what would be altered consciousness. Uh, but if you go too far, you're going to spill your glass and make a fool of yourself. And that's one way in which the God was encountered. But the other way was a wild revel in, in, in the countryside where spiritual beings materialized, not creatures of our reality, but from another reality. As I, as I said, if you lose your, your grasp on how you structure and what you see, all kinds of things uh, can emerge. There was a mythical program for what they would be. And these are creatures who are half animal and who are sexually irresponsible. Original rebel was only for women. Uh, and uh, the these creatures from the wilderness are shown with exaggerated erections, cavorting with them. Uh, and it's, it's also humorous because uh, uh, the goat man shows uh, the Mayanad huge erection and the Mayanad is obviously saying, well, you think that's great? I don't think that's so good. I mean, it's, it's playful. <laughs> I've, I've seen bigger. Uh, the two aspects of the God, but uh, on the mountain, they are never shown drinking wine. And uh, the only one who ever has a wine container is the God himself. But of course, the God doesn't exist in our reality. So he has to be an apparition. Or when, when I say it doesn't exist in our reality, I, I don't mean that the other reality isn't real. I mean, that the boundary between the two has dissolved. And uh, so the God is there. And he's not uh, he's not going to drink from a, a wine goblet. He's got, he's got a, a hefty uh, jug with two handles, but that's not real. I mean, or, or it's not ordinary reality. And so the women never are drinking. And uh, the emblem of what they are doing is staff that they have, and track the uh, references for what the, it is. And it's emblematic of people gathering wild plants. I don't mean to say that they were eating wild plants. They were doing something that was getting them very high. And this is not a pure metaphor because we have a historical account, classical antiquity, Greek antiquity, of revel that took place on a mountainside. Uh, and the uh, women, when they came down from the mountain, stumbled into a village on the slopes of the mountain. The uh, village was uh, engaged in a war, and there was a garrison of soldiers stationed there. And the women of the town were aware of the fact that these crazy women from the mountain would be vulnerable to sexual assault. And so they formed a circle around them to protect them. And the women passed out in the central square, and the women protect them as they walk up the next morning. Now. That is in the classical period in, in, in southern Italy, which is originally uh, inhabited by Greek uh, immigrants. 
one of the earliest documents we have, in fact, the earliest document we have from Latin is, is called the Decree of the Senate concerning the Bacchanalia. It comes to the attention of the Senate that they were having these Bacchanalia revels in southern Italy. And the evidence, which is well documented, what was going on is that by this time, that revel was so much fun. Men as well as women were engaging in it. In classical antiquity, Greek antiquity, fifth century, it was only for women. Here we're now in the second century before Christ. Men as well as women were. The documentation is that they were having wild sex, um, more women with women and men with men, and not a few murders were taking place. And obviously, Senate could not allow that to go on. And so they passed this decree about the performance of the Bacchanalia. But they didn't say, you can't do it, because they were wise enough to know that you, you can't prohibit religion. Uh, what they said is, you can do it only if you get a, a, a license, a permit. And I imagine, we don't know, it was rather hard to get a permit to do this. In, in, in classical mythology, the the myth that the leader who says that women can't do it is the Pentheus of Thebes, and so he prohibits it. It turns out you can't stop this from happening. But he also wants to find out what's going on, so he goes up on the mountain to spy on them, and he is pulled to pieces by his own mother. So the, the Senate was aware of the fact you don't do what Pentheus did, you sort of destroy the, uh, destroy the state. You just say, well, you have to get a permit. <laughs> wow. Like I'm, I'm, I'm actually personally just silent because I'm just completely engaged with your story. It's, I'm also curious what, and maybe that's it's also a difficult question, but like what happened basically afterwards? Because I think at the 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 turning point of of the millennia, basically, with the introduction of of Jesus Christ, maybe things have changed slightly when it when it come to um these these rituals these uh substances these wines that they were taking or maybe it 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 turned underground or at least that's my assumption of it when reading some other books but i'm curious what what's because it clearly changed in in our direct history where the use of these wines has changed completely or actually it, it doesn't really exist anymore we don't really have these rituals that are so deep we do have our own common ceremonies but i'm curious what happened after that that greek time we suspect that the christian eucharist is a continuation of ancient mystery tradition and the eucharist um, was originally or at least for certain elite initiates uh, psychoactive the jesus was recognized as a, a version of Dionysus. Our text of Euripides Bacchae is deficient. It's the, the original manuscript was, was mutilated in the, in the final pages. And so we don't have the end of the play. But in the 10th century, a poet lifted verses from ancient Greek tragedy, 10th century Christian era, lifted uh, verses from the ancient tragedies to tell the story of Christ called the suffering Christ, Christos Patiens. And he lifted a large number of them from Euripides Bacchae. And uh, we're able to recognize verses which come from what would have been the end of Euripides' play, and they're put back into Euripides. 
So when we read Euripides' text, some of the final verses uh, come to us via this uh, retelling of the suffering Christ. And the, the Eucharist is highly suspicious because uh, it is bread, which is the emblem of the Eleusinian mysteries, the grain, basic dry food stuff of mankind, which is bread uh, and wine. And when Christ says, take this, uh, this is my body, eat it. Uh, take this wine, drink it, it's in my blood. It's a, a totally, totally repellent idea if he was a Jew to say, uh, take this cup of blood and drink it. Uh, since in uh, Judaic dietary practices, you can't have any meat that the blood hasn't been drained from it. So totally repulsive to think of a whole glass of blood that you're going to drink. Uh, it's 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 not a it's not a Jewish sacrament. It's it's a Hellenic sacrament. And uh, so we have been interested, and in, uh, other people have, have been investigating this as well, to see what, whether there are indications that in the long tradition of Christianity, there were groups that for which uh, the Eucharist was a psychoactive sacrament. And we feel that we've been able to identify what the sacrament was, the continuation of the old symbolism of Dionysus and the, and the mysteries. I think this... Um... This also when these things I start to realize imploded my brain and literally made me slightly dizzy <laughs> for a couple of days that a story that we have known for millennia uh, that the origin of it is rather different even though if you actually think about it it just makes way more sense <laughs> and for some reason I, I like to call it the original war on drugs perhaps um, yes where it uh basically all started but i equally also know that to dive into this specific topic that's another rabbit hole that deserves way more uh time and mm -hmm. attention um i'm curious to if we would fast forward to today like again you're still teaching uh these beautiful classes and courses and stories like i'm do you see change in society in when the the antiogen the psychedelic is becoming more talked about more accepted more open people are still interested in and in, in about your books and about your work your life work it seems to be really opening up so i'm, I'm curious also what matthias was alluding to earlier like people are gaining their vision but yes uh, i mean it, it is uh, un unusual today to have a student who has not had an experience of altered consciousness and we are perhaps in a better situation now than we were in the road to Eleusis, in that the students are more aware that uh, the experience can be dangerous and that, that some, some substances are addictive and they don't want to uh, fall into that kind of in, imprisonment. The, the addiction is, is addictive potential. It's not simply with so-called illegal drugs, but uh, prescription drugs. And so they're, they're knowledgeable about drugs and are better aware of what we are talking about when we say altered consciousness and, and different uh, ways of structuring reality. Well, what I've also found in, find interesting in terms of the, the growing awareness that you just talked about, about altering our consciousness is, 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 somewhat of a i think it's a it's statistical it's this sorry i think it's a statistical fact that 
um, active participation in Christian and also, I believe, other religions is declining, specifically in the United States, but I think also in the European Union. So, there, so on, the, on, on one hand, I'm observing an increase in awareness of substances that can show us these alternative realities. And at the same time, the urge to go to the cave, so to say, the more traditional cave, is fading away. What is your perception on that, on that tension? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I am always very cautious about this area of experience because I don't like anyone uh, imposing an interpretation uh, on someone else, which is the establishment of a, of a new religion or a philosophical school or something like that. And uh, I, I don't, I don't think it's, I think it's evil to impose your structure on someone else, but I don't think that it's an error to talk about mythological paradigms, which have often functioned as a, as a means for interpreting other forms of, of, of reality. I'm talking about what the minetic experience was and making it quite clear that what we're looking at is a, a dissolving of the boundary between what would have been thought of as mystical or theological reality and ordinary human reality. This, I mean, things like these ethophallic goatmen don't exist per se, but if you have that as, as a part of your programming, that is the way that you would perhaps interpret what otherwise you could say is the most common metaphor for mystical union, which is uh, orgasmic. doesn't mean to say that it's sex, but uh, that is the uh, ultimate physical experience that is similar to what is what happens when the boundaries between this world and another world are, are dissolved and the way that it would be interpreted or perhaps even felt by people in antiquity partaking in this ceremony would be that they were having sex with a god and that don't mean that when 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 you do that you are having sex with a god but that would be the way it, it would be programmed because the experience is always orgasmic I'm also curious because to the point of the, maybe the decline in religion and also to your point of you don't want to impose any structure on, on this bigger reality anyway, but you do also sometimes read that nowadays we've, we've lost mythology, we've lost myth, a, a greater story. And I'm still curious, like, be, do you agree with that? And if so, like, where could we refine myth? Like, should we create new ones? But then again, that's uh, the new yeah. church, which you don't want, for instance, or we need to go back to the old ones? Yeah, I, uh, I mean, uh, Columbus Day is now Indigenous People's Day, um, where the fact that uh, America w wasn't discovered, <laughs> it was always there. <laughs> and... and that the, the cultures in the New World had uh, equally valid uh, myths and, uh, uh, and programmings for their way of structuring reality. So that classical mythology uh, has to be seen as just a version of, uh, of world mythologies. However, it was 
Jung's perception that all myths from all cultures do seem to conform to certain patterns which are archetypes of human experience. And so all myths from all peoples from all periods are telling the same story if you study them correctly. And that's what I've been interested in all these years. This is maybe also my, my last question. Like um, we've been talking about this slightly before. Like actually, the word mystery, which you also beautifully uh, explained what it actually meant, like the the mumming of saying something. But but how do you need? How do you how do you marry that with with the the, the notion of of science, which tries to un, un unveil? The, science, the myth, like we want to know how it works, we want to know exactly how it works. But Very explicit. And, and, but how can you marry that if it's even possible? Yeah, um, modern science, I mean, I've talked about this, although it's been lurking there in the background all along. We have to be really aware today that our structuring of myth is are structuring it's not, it's not the reality because as, as I, i sit here talking to you the contents more and more now of every book are floating in the space here and all i need is the electronic device to tap into it hmm. uh, so more and more every word that's ever been written is right here in this room and i just need to have the access to it For, for it to materialize. And how, and how can you deny that all of that, all of those men, those products of, of our human culture are hovering in the space between us and and they are there and we can't access them. Hmm. That doesn't mean to say that's all there is to access either. That's just gives you an idea how internet the possibilities must be. Beautiful. It's uh, this, this reminds me of, uh, of how a... Uh... A Zen teacher would talk to his student. <laughs> it's it's an answer that is not definite, and it gives the student a lot to ponder on, which I think is beautiful. Yeah. Very beautiful. Do you talk with your students in a similar manner? I get um, teaching a course next semester on myth and human consciousness. That's pretty much what it's about. Yeah. Huh. Do you actually, and that's a more practical question, do you need to be enrolled in the university or is it possible to that these things are recorded and shared because I believe that so many people would gain from this um, also outside the universities and, and I think people would love it and would would love to hear your knowledge and your experience and your wisdom because I kind of uh, feel we miss it. Yeah, well, that, that's why I talk to people like you. Mm. <laughs> True. <laughs> Touche. Yeah, I think for now that I would love to thank you indeed for your knowledge and your experience and also your time to take, to talk to us, to, to show and to teach us. Um, thank you. It's um, it's interesting because I only, I kind of feel like we've warmed up and we can dive into the nitty gritty right now. Oh yeah. Well, maybe then. <laughs> no, 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 not to say it, it's, it's, but it's, 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 it's the way we, we have done the conversation is that, and as I said, uh, maybe like 40 minutes ago, when you answered the question, I was like, I need to let this yeah, sink, yeah, sink in, in for a bit. Um, no, I was just, I, it, see it as a, as a compliment. 
No, I think that uh, and maybe like again, hopefully, um, if if you are interested in this as well, uh, we we would love to talk to you again, where this maybe was a introduction and maybe uh, next time we can s focus on a specific point that maybe y you want us to focus on or uh, because again like I said and what I truly mean is that I, I people would love this and would actually kind of need this uh, because it's not given it's not provided and specifically people that really tap into th the source of everything which are the classics and that's also why you studied it so beautifully yeah connected it with psychology and the human psyche uh, yes. because I think we've drifted away very far from it and people are hungry for something but they don't know what and I believe this is yeah. at least a guiding maybe to towards back to that so for now again I would really like to thank you for your time and hopefully we can continue our conversation on another topic because you've written so many books. Like again, like you said, this the road to Ulysses is one block of the entire house you're building, and I would love to talk about the house. Yeah, that'd be fun. Great, Carl. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Pleasure seeing you. You're looking very well. Look forward to seeing you again. Love thank you very much, Carl. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. You too. Bye -bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.